listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Sponsored by Storm, the digital cinema production hub from The Foundry. Go to thefoundry.co.uk slash storm for details. And by the Australian Cinematographers Society. Visit cinematographer.org.au. G'day and welcome to Red Centre. Uh, I'm joined as always by Jason Wingram. How are you, sir? Hi, mate. G'day. I shouldn't have said g'day. <laughs> no, we just don't normally start with g'day, but that's good. Um, g'day. Hello. <laughs> good evening and welcome oh. <laughs> to Radio RC. Radio RC. Coming to you from the <coughs> central command position here in Sydney. How are we? We're good. Excellent. with you. Very good. Thank you. Busy, which is good. So, uh, yes, it's been... Been good. Lots of prep. Heading off to New Zealand in a couple of days, and you're heading off as well. So we'll I am heading get a off to. I've got to go to. I literally, it's really shitty. This I've got to go to America, then I got to get back, then I got to Melbourne, then I got to get back, then I got to New Zealand. So I'm looking forward to uncomfortable sitting in seats. Yeah, yeah, that's not great. Um, coming up later on the show, we have some really good interviews. I have an interview with Tony Gard. I just won the uh, Cinematography Award at TropFest for an astonishingly cool um, DSLR uh, film. This is a film that came third overall. I think it should have come first. It's uh, astonishing for a number of reasons. It involves time-lapse and live action, and it's also just a labour of love from a bunch of guys who just really show you that if you've just got a camera and a good attitude, then you can be arrested practically and put up against the wall by <laughs> police while filming Both. without permits in the middle of Sydney's uh, finest. Forest. Excellent. Um, and you have an interview. Yes, I've got a shot, uh, chat with John Gulasarian, who was a DP on the um, Sundance uh, feature called Like Crazy, which he shot on 7D. Um, so, yeah, that's a great chat with, with John. And uh, I think we've also... Going to dial a friend. Going to dial, dial an friend. expert um, later in the, in the show uh, when we get into the news section so that's all coming up in the show we wanted to focus this week uh as much as we could on independent uh sort of not, not necessarily i think lower budget's the wrong uh, shadow to cast over the films I, I just think they're really great independent um and quite inspirational pieces mm. and really good success stories and so we thought we'd do that this week and then uh, next week we'll get on to bigger and uh bigger and better and lushier things um but let's go first to the news desk and now the rc news Okay, well, I guess uh, what's st- slowly starting to happen here is that uh, in red news is that uh, Epic M's are, are trickling, starting to trickle out here and there. Uh, Steve Gibby, uh, who I think shoots for um, Catch Rossi Studios, is, uh, has taken delivery of um, Epic uh, 008, and he's been very generous lending that to a fair few people. Which are they is numbering nice. the Epics the same way, or okay. is it just that he was number eight? In the red ones, and it, so it, it, it's. I'd, I'd love someone to explain the numbering system. I think it uh, is a little bit out there. Uh, he does actually own Red One Double O Eight, right? So thus, he's obviously you know next, you know, pretty pretty up the front of the line in terms of uh, for Epic M's. Though obviously, Epic M's, as I understand it, is not on the same numbering system as Epic X's. It's M's are like a completely separate list. It's basically the tattoo program. Let's yeah. face it. Exactly. Um, but we've got uh, Dino G uh, on Red User, who's uh, just received Epic uh, number 87 
Uh, and he has, uh, I think he has uh, read one like number 31 or so. Uh, in, in the Yeah, read one in the th- number 31 and he has uh, Epic 87. So, yeah, not quite sure what the num- where the numbering system is going there. But the main thing is that uh, it's uh, that there's starting to trickle out as as Red have said we're going to start to trickle out the M's to those that have ordered it and uh, well there are quite a few M's in use on Spider-Man and in New Zealand for The Hobbit and elsewhere other features so yeah I guess between them and the prototypes they built and everything else. Because don't forget, even the original red ones, the numbers seemed lower because all the ones like London and Paris and stuff weren't counted in the um, mm. in the run. So there was a whole run before you got to number wonder whatever mine was 22. Yeah, that's so. true. And I think uh, Steve Gibby also owns London. Uh, has his hands on that so yeah well look speaking of you know the epics out in the real world I've been uh, speaking to our our little sort of um, reporters out in the field there shooting with uh, a lot of the uh, the feature shoots out there and the real world feedback is obviously I mean these 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 uh, cameras out in the world, and obviously the ones shooting shooting features, not just not the Epic M's in people's in customers' hands, but also out on on, on shoots, are still test beds for um, uh, you know for for Epic X when it starts to roll out, regardless of how production ready you know Red have said the Epic M's are, and and they are. Uh, there is still a lot of development going on there. There's there's builds you know every week there's updates to software and and um uh software and firmware literally every day or every week or so um but just these are more to uh switch on enhancements versus actually bug fixing because everyone is saying these cameras are incredibly stable um they're working really well they've been shooting uh thousands of hours on uh, hundreds and hundreds of, of ssd drives and they haven't missed a beat so it's been uh, great to see that you know there's a lot there is um you know there's a lot of stability out there in the world for these and obviously they're still using these as a bit of a test bed and as red have said once they're really happy with and they're at a stage that they know they can start implementing everything from epic m uh, into the epic x's then that obviously that production line will roll they are the last update time wise we got from from red was that there would be shipping in reasonable quantities before nab so that's for epic x as well so that's only about five weeks away, though, at the time of recording. So, but as Red say, the work being done now with Epic M's is the groundwork for production Epic X's. So we'll just have to wait and see. But not much time left between now and NAB. Yeah, but they they are out there. Yep. Um, people are shooting them no longer with sort of a, anyone from Red sort of standing by them. Um, these aren't special stereo setups. These are just sort of normal, you know, cameras out in the field. So. Yep. Uh, I, I, look, it's um, and it's obviously they are sending these epic M's to people who they know can essentially the same with the red ones feedback to them with proper issues, you know, keep stuff on the quiet, ta- talk to them in terms of real world about you know issues they're having or feedback to them. You know, essentially it's it's, it's another sort of beta program really, even though the cameras are f- way more f- further along than the original red ones were. So. You know, I'm sure that there's a long list of people who want Epic M's, but you know, these these cameras are really uh, going out to people who they know that um, Red know they can sort of trust to give the right sort of technical feedback and uh, creative feedback, and uh, you know, work work hand in hand, I guess, with them. Excellent. Well, moving on, um, are you going to skip over the fact that people don't like the new theme music? 
Yep, I'm going to okay. completely skip uh, away from so that. So then that, uh, uh, there's a Red Cine X416, which is a 64-bit version, um, which is out. There's also there's a, there's a separate uh, download link for the Epic um, Red Cine uh, X. Now, the reason for that is because most people don't have obviously epic but there is footage being posted now and if you want to download it and it doesn't seem to work in your old version you have to go to a special link for that which we've given out in the past um now in the past i think there's been a 32-bit and a 64-bit version um i think the 64-bit i downloaded and and opened fine in my mac pro running in 32-bit mode so i'm not quite sure what the delineation between the two is it seems to be yeah it seems to be working fine i've got the latest version it seems to be working well well i've got the latest epic version the so i can look at test footage yeah sure um, okay. And also there's uh, a uh, DSLR anti-moray filter, apparently. Yeah, that's uh, we're yet to test this, but uh, I thought we'd sort of obviously, if you haven't had that, seen the heads up in sort of blogs and things, that uh, Jorgen Escher has uh, developed uh, an anti-moray filter for Final Cut Pro. Now, this is um, donateware, so if you're actually don't, you know downloading it and using it, maybe you know consider flicking him some money for it. I've not tested it yet. I've downloaded it and yet to sort of really check it out. What he stresses is this is not a blur filter. This is not going to soften your image. It's going to actually transform the color space to uh, uh, YCBCR and breaks it up into components, and it doesn't work with AVC HD footage, so you will need to convert anything you have into uh, ProRes or H.264 before you use it. Uh, and he, he claims it's going to remove almost 100% of this that fine micro sort of moire, he calls it, um, you know, from like hair and, and very fine details, uh, and take away some of that sort of colour artefacting you get, which can often be, sometimes be more uh, distracting than actually seeing physical hard moire itself. So, um, yeah, as I say, yet to test it to see if it really i'm amazed if it can do it and not actually do any softening to the image but uh again there's notes uh, there's uh, links to that in the show notes so uh yeah well congrats to, to jordan escher for doing it and to making it donate where rather than you know just buy and then try yeah and something else i look i haven't got this in the show notes yet but um we could probably add it uh those of you that are using um ari alexas there is a uh, 3d lut uh, which is the same vein, and this is actually uh, done by uh, Nick Shaw. And um, Nick made this 3D LUT for uh, doing stuff with uh, S-Log and stuff with the um, ARRI. It's been available up until now as like a free download. Um, that's just gone to shareware as well, which makes me remind you myself to, to mention it to you. Right. Um, so this is um, this is basically an Alexa LUT for FCP. We use it here. We've happily donated uh, to the firmware. And um, that's dealing now, I think, with the or it's about to with the Alexa 3.0 firmware that I think we mentioned last week. That if we didn't, I know I tweeted it that almost everyone on the planet should now have the new Alexa software update. Yep. And so this is a lot for that. Um, now this switches on the raw, and obviously we're just jumping back a little bit. But, the, but the Alexa 3.0 firmware updates to include raw. You could do raw before, yep. and we did. It was harder to get to on the menus. Um, now it's really easy to get to. Uh, so it's easy to shoot raw. Obviously, same field of view, but higher resolution. And uh, the LUT for the raw is what I'm referring to, and the LUT yep. goes in FCP. Uh, Nick set this up. It didn't do it for any other reason than as a uh, he found it would be helpful for himself, and he did it. Um, but if you do donate the thirty bucks to Nick, and I, I have no, we have no financial investment in any of this. It's just we're being passing this along. Then I think Nick is going to also uh, include you in some other developments he has coming up for. Uh, red log film and s log curves and and other stuff so um i I like supporting people that do this kind of stuff um this is not strictly an ARRI fully mega 
thing owed a lot because yep. uh, I don't think Nick has access to the um, the full matrixing that uh, happens with Ari. But having said that, I think it's really, really good, and we use it in FCP and have recommended it. So, um, so if you don't, so what's the advantage to using it? Sorry, Mike, because uh, uh, what's the advantage of using raw or using the LUT? So the LUT is if you're using the Ari raw. Uh, yeah. So let's say you want to bring the Ari raw stuff in uh, to. Um, to process, yep. you'd want a LUT to convert that from the raw file to something that's not raw, and that's what the LUT would do. Because it looks very log and or, or you just physically can't well, read? Yeah, because it's raw, basically. Yeah. And so uh, it doesn't look um, like a it's normal picture. Very flat. and Yeah. Well, we get the whole colour space and gamma discussion. But yes, without turning this into Go another on one of those, <laughs> um, yes, it's basically going to make your stuff look right in FCP. It's probably the simple short answer. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, it basically approximates um, the uh, Rec. 709 with a simple saturation boost as a kind of a um, – not being very precise when I say that because I don't want to get into a 20-minute yeah. discussion about this. No, no. But, yeah, it's yeah, good. it's That's good. We use it. Digest, it's, digest answer. It's yeah, fine. and, and uh, Nick's a nice guy, so. Excellent. Um, okay, so that was uh, uh, just another one of those we like to – if you've got something like this, by the way, that uh, you've developed that's professional – um, that is either shareware or just you know a plugin that is not too expensive, or whatever. We're really happy to promote those things. We want to because it's. I think, Jace, for me, this is a lot of that. Um, I don't know the stuff that's between the gaps that helps cover the gaps and and gets you from A to B. And quite often, it's a little stage that's missing. Um, you have the big picture, and it all yeah. sounds great. And then when you actually try doing it, you go, "Well, hang on a second. How do I actually convert that? Yeah. Oh, well, you need a lot. Where do I get that from? Yeah. And um, so that's the kind of thing that it's at. Absolutely. Now, and obviously, th- he's been in touch with us, so you know we know because he's been in touch with us. To well, we, we just it, so. we just used it, and uh, we were using it because it was free, and uh, then um, we were like, "This is great!" And then we heard that he was going to take it to uh, to be shareware, like you know, make a donation. And I was really happy. I mean, in fact, as soon as I got the email, I donated the uh, thirty bucks. Excellent. Hey, um, so the other thing that happened this morning which is something we would not normally cover on uh, the RC, is that the uh, announcements for the specs for the new Apple Mac Pro laptops came out. Mm. Now, uh, I think this is really significant for a couple of reasons, but I say significant, I mean for RC listeners. Um, Because, Jase, honestly, most people use Mac laptops in production. Yep. Yep, you rarely see uh, other, not anything against PC stuff, you just rarely see it on, on set in terms of, you know, for even just for DIT guys who could use any uh, computer to uh, copy off data and, and you know, check check the, the confidence on the data. Um, yeah, they, it, there's max rule on set, basically. And the, the big thing uh, that I thought was interesting about this, it's not just a you know, bump on the processor or a bump on the graphics or something. It's this idea of a um, Thunderbolt technology. And uh, basically, Thunderbolt is uh, a very new, I didn't expect to see this thing from Apple. In fact, I was, you know, actually doing stuff on USB 3.0. I was doing stuff on uh, on other stuff. And yeah. I just did not know this was coming. Um, I don't know about mm. you, but it was just... Uh, no, not at all. I was hoping they would do something thing other than or, or they would adopt USB 3.0, you know, we'd seen some fantastic stuff, particularly the last NAB, see some great stuff from Blackmagic Design that was all based on um, USB 3.0 and we thought, well, you know, clearly this is great We'd been great to have something simple uh, that's going to be fast, uh, but no I did not see this coming and obviously 
what's going to be great is when third party companies and when somebody you know when other people get a hold of this technology and start developing it for our arena um uh, so mike maybe you're probably best to give us a very quick overview of what actually uh, well actually rather than doing that jace i think we should dial a friend because quite frankly um we don't want to just read from the press release we want to have somebody that's uh, had a chance to really think about this and also has been doing research into this and gpu technology and the related issues and how all of this impacts on um someone in a film uh production workflow and luckily we have such an expert um joined on the line now by john montgomery john are you there hey guys how's it going i'm doing great some interesting news today from the macbook world it is it is interesting um a little confusing i think at first glance and and certainly uh the implications will probably take a little while to wash out um but it's always the case when we get a brand new kind of interface um with this uh well i keep on going to call it thunderball (laughs) (laughs) or i and i light peak (laughs) okay so so tell us uh what is it that apple have done and how much do you um think this is going to change anything Well, I think it's actually quite interesting from an architectural standpoint. I've been crabbing, I guess you could say, uh, (laughs) about the lack of the Express card slot on these smaller MacBook Pros. And instead, you know, one of the standard uh, SD digital cards. I'm like, who needs that? I miss the Express slot. I want to hook up eSATA drives. We want to hook up external adapters, things like that. So honestly, I've been crabbing since they last uh, dropped that adapter in their uh, previous remake of the line. And, but what's cool about the uh, Thunderbolt is it effectively serves as both a graphics display port and also effectively, one could argue, as a uh, stand-in for that express card slot because you can drive both uh, graphics displays and uh, devices that sensibly you know, fall under the PCI Express banner on that port, which could be uh, an eSATA rate or a rate of hard drives. It could be uh, up to two uh, Apple Cinema displays running on DisplayPort. Um, so there are lots of really interesting users. In other words, it gives us a high-speed external port on the MacBook Pro, the 15-inch MacBook Pro, that was missing uh, for the last year at least. Okay, well, let's walk through it just for, like I'm stupid, which won't be very hard for anyone to imagine. Right. <laughs> so I've got an existing setup, and I swap out my MacBook and get a new one, okay. and I've got a monitor. So my first problem is if I plug the monitor into the slot on this new book, I don't have any other place to plug anything in. But this thing's designed to be daisy-chained, but my monitor wouldn't have any plugs on it yet because it only has yeah, USB well, 2. Well, right? well, first off, your monitor's going to work. Okay, that's, that's number one to remember. Um, but number two, what you could do is I imagine, um, and we haven't seen the, uh, many products or any products shipping at this point from an external storage standpoint, but imagine those external hard drives would have a pass-through, much like you would on a FireWire external drive now. I mean, if you look at the back of most FireWire drive, you have, say, yep. two 400 ports or two FireWire 800 ports. So what you could do is go from uh, the Thunderbolt port which, again, looks like a DisplayPort connector, into your hard drive and then loop out of your hard drive into your display device, and you'd be good to go. But you're correct. You couldn't put something after the display device, but it could always be at the end. Okay. So now I want to use uh, a new uh, red uh, module, and so that has a docking station. The docking station's eSATA. So how do I use that? Well, the theory is, and we do have, again, this is announced, what, now uh, six hours ago when officially we're live, right? But in theory, the idea is that since that device supports uh, PCI Express uh, technology, that the adapter to go from Thunderbolt 
to that eSATA device is really quite simple and or, you know, fairly inexpensive to make. So it basically could be, you know, a little box that you have. You plug in your, your cable into your MacBook Pro, go into a little box, and then come out of that box into your Red Rocket card or some other device that's built for uh, PCI or Express Card uh, device. So basically adapters. Key, right, because the key about this is the daisy chaining, as we've just mentioned, but also that it's power over cable for bus-powered devices. So if we've got a device like that, then just like USB, we can just uh, plug it in and we can plug in to some yet-to-be-released adapter <laughs> that gets me from where I am to where I want to be, right? So if I've got my card, I pop out of my red camera and I want to do a really fast transfer because... I was imagining that they might go USB 3, but this thing really kicks it even over USB 3, right? Yeah, it's about double the speed, uh, theoretically, of USB 3. And again, um, it, and it's asynchronous, so it's 10 in both directions. So, um, uh, it, you know, that's, you know, they say to, you know, 10 to, what, 12 times faster than FireWire 800, say? So significant speed up in transferring large amounts of data. I mean, you can see it on set. It would be fantastic to be able to transfer a backup twice as fast, four times as fast, five times as fast as what you can do now in the field with your MacBook Pro. I think that's pretty exciting. So, John, idiot number two here. Yep. Uh, do you... Uh, so, with, like, I guess, the current sort of onset eSATA kind of, say, I'm talking, I guess, in, in like, a DIT kind of arena, mm-hmm. the probably the slowest uh, part of that chain is probably going to be the computer itself. If we're starting to see... Uh, people using the new MacBook Pros with old eSATA stuff. Does that mean, I guess, have we sort of unclogged the bottleneck a little bit with having a slightly faster um I think it certainly uh, seems that way, Jason. I mean, from everything that you can tell, and again, uh, I'll have mine on Monday, hopefully, back in Chicago. Uh, <laughs> I, won't have any, I won't have anything to play with it uh, on, but, uh, right. but, in, but in theory, you're right. You're exactly right. I mean, again, this is a much faster, what is it, uh, almost four times as fast as uh, the Express Card slot, I think, uh, as, as again, Wells double USB 3. So I think that bottleneck is, at least for the time being, going to go away. We'll see how efficient it is, but anything that you read in the tech spec, uh, we'll probably put some links in the Red Center show notes to some tech, tech specs about it. Uh, it seems it's just built from the ground up to be very efficient in protocol. And again, sharing up to, I think it's uh, seven devices, two of which can be displays. Do you think this is going to work with uh, lower-end MacBook Pros or like some of the uh, MacBook Airs? Obviously, they have got no sort of really good uh, um, FireWire. They have anything in those machines, but obviously they have a DisplayPort kind of adapter. I guess maybe this will I think that would let be, you get away with a smaller machine or a lighter machine. I think that would be awesome. I think you're seeing the writing on the wall with that. I think it's interesting you brought that up, this idea of having the MacBook Air where you're kind of separating off um, that really hardcore processing power. I mean, imagine, I mean, just, just think about it in the future that you could actually say, if you want to grade some stuff on set, um, potentially, uh, let's say resolve on set, for instance, even think about it. You could actually have an external PCI card cage that could have multiple quadro cards in it. So you could use the processing speed of that external PCI box hooked up to your MacBook as you put it in the future air where all the processing Mm. is really being done. Uh, in that external box. Now, granted, you have to carry it around. Uh, it's not portable, you know, not extremely portable like the MacBook Air, but this idea of uh, kind of offloading some of that external processing to a different device is quite interesting moving anybody, forward. Anybody who's lugged around the big Mac Pro to try and do no, that kind exactly. of color, coloring power, 
on set would be well, you know, and, well keen. Yeah, and I've been carrying around this HP Elite book with a Quadro 5000M card in it and Dream Color, and it's you know close to 10 pounds. So I think mm. carrying around an external box isn't that big of an ask when you're going on set. Hey, um, speaking of which, you, you mentioned like Resolve or whatever, but are there some issues with the graphics options? Because this thing <laughs> doesn't seem to have any in, NVIDIA cards. I was a bit crabby about that on Twitter earlier today, yeah. Um, uh, there are no uh, NVIDIA options um, built in uh, or available at all now for the MacBook Pros. Uh, and basically what that does is that removes the possibility of having any CUDA accelerated products running on your MacBook Pro. Uh, by that, I mean uh, something like Resolve relies on CUDA to do its processing. Um, I don't I'm sure you've heard of the Mercury playback engine in Premiere. Uh, basically yeah. speeds yeah. up a lot of processing and color correction, color grading. It utilizes CUDA processing technology. You know, it doesn't use that to decode, say, R3Ds if you're on set and doing that, but it does uh, doing the filters and the editing and so forth. Uh, even, I think, some of the Foundry plugins, some of that Blink technology we've talked about at FX Guide use a lot of the CUDA processing, that parallel processing architecture. And so you're not going to have that kind of advantage on uh, the Mac notebook platform or the MacBook platform. Uh, I guess, at least for the next uh, 12 months, probably, or something like that, if if and when they add a quadro card. I mean, it, um, NVIDIA just introduced a wicked new uh, graphics card, a 5010 mobile card that has, like, a double the memory of all the previous mobile processes in the past, but that's just something that we won't have access to on the Mac platform. So... That's that's kind of a bummer, bummer. but um, at the same time, it's important to distinguish some of that CUDA stuff that's very specific to NVIDIA with stuff that's much more general and applicable about across multiple uh, graphics card vendors like ATI and NVIDIA. There's a different way you can program your effects for the GPU, and that's using uh, GPU shading, shader language. And that type of thing is much more accessible and much more transferable between different graphics platforms. For instance, Smoke on Mac. Their stuff is written in GPU shader, so you can have NVIDIA cards or ATI cards, and it still works. Uh, I believe things like Colorista 2 that you might be using on set to look at stuff uh, from Magic Bullet, that's mm. compatible both in ATI and NVIDIA graphics cards. So depending upon how they program stuff for the GPU, um, that really depends. But if you see something that's CUDA accelerated, if you read that, that's not going to be workable in the new MacBook Pro lineup. I, I guess the other thing, the, the thing to remember, though, is that I was really initially very crabby about that, been thinking about it. I feel a little better about it, uh, knowing that, you know, there are only very, at this point, specific things that are programmed only for CUDA. Uh, the more general-purpose shader language is something that's used much more often. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Though, uh, it does seem odd that there's no NVIDIA support yeah. at all. Because yeah, I agree. Maybe that will change. Hey, um. Uh, I was going to ask you, what do you? What's the take on this SDXC uh, card slot? Like, I mean, is that is that for people that have little point and shoots? I mean, what what are we going to use that for professionally? <laughs> Funny you should ask that. But I just used that the other day for my Zoom H4n offloading some stuff. Ah. I couldn't find a cable anywhere and actually use that in a pinch to upload something. I think for one of our podcasts. I think I did an intro or something like that for it. Uh, but I'm with you on that. I mean, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I find that slot much more uh, pretty useless for the most part. I just, again, it was the first time in one year that I had used that slot. And that just happened to be last week uh, when I was up in Montreal. <laughs> so, I'll yeah. swap you with my one with the express slot, uh, John. Really? What was that, Jay? I'll swap you with the one with my express slot then. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I don't think John's going to swap his new laptop with you anytime soon. John, um, on your current laptop, which uh, is very similar to my current laptop, because I know we um, we uh, were modding them in uh, Korea. We're tech enablers uh, for each other, tech purchase enablers, I think. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's <laughs> disgusting. But anyway, um, we've taken out our CD, DVD drives and put in an extra hard drive. Um, and so that's increased, obviously, the performance. In these machines, uh, you can get a 750 meg drive, which uh, gig drive, which sounds great. Um, but of course, in the one configuration that both you and I have modded our computers to, we have an SSD drive in our normal hard drive slot, and then have an external, uh, externally bought hard drive that has been put in place of the uh, CD DVD drive in the in the box. Do you feel that you're going to go down that route again? Because I mean, the thing about uh, that configuration is you get uh, quite a lot of performance from the fact that the system and any of the main apps are coming off a solid state drive and there's the other drive is um is being used for data and i really haven't missed not having a cd drive i've got to say what, what's your feelings on that uh, no doubt i'm going to do the exact same thing um i'll I point out uh, that there are the 750 gig drive that they ship in the default configuration is only 5400 rpm and we actually uh, we did the 7200 rpm which i yeah, would recommend yeah. so yeah I, I would actually do the exact same thing even with the caveat that I effectively broke my macbook pro by doing that uh, i have one workable usb slot by blowing out the motherboard while <laughs> swapping in the solid state drive but but i'm going to roll the dice i'm going to roll the dice and do it again because having the mac os boot in 30 seconds and apps launch in one bounce is a really great thing it really speeds up workflow uh, and it's actually a really interesting way to go moving forward. The key is just to make sure that you create in, uh, you know, a Snow Leopard boot drive on a USB stick before you remove your DVD drive. But uh, I would definitely do the same thing. Solid state drive for your boot drive, 700, 750 gig Seagate 7200 RPM drive for the data drive in place of the DVD drive that ships with it. Yeah, and in fact, even the 500 gig drive in the other option is yeah. only a 5400, so neither of them are particularly high performance, which is kind of surprising, really. Um, I think it's good that the computers only cost, uh, you know, two grand or two grand 200 in the US, mm. um, slightly more in hey, Australia yeah, than it makes no sense. But. And, and, and you got, I got to say, so I bought, ours are a year old, right, Mike? I think we bought them, I think I bought mm. it in April of last year, and that has a 6, 640M Intel Core processor. As best as I can tell, while they don't list the uh, CPU that they use, uh, I've tracked it down to whatever, it's a 2720. Uh, the best I can see, it's almost close to double the speed of the processors that we have. Um, granted, it's quad-core versus dual-core, but if you take something that's well multi-threaded, like a lot of the on-set conversion programs are and things like that, like Red's, Apps, I think, are pretty well multi-threaded and take advantage of multiple CPUs. Well, uh, you're going to get a sig- compressor. Compressor com- multi-threaded. Yeah, compressor too. Um, applications which are really targeted to you know utilizing multiple CPUs, you'll see a significant boost from the current generation MacBook Pro to the new ones. I mean, it's almost it is. It's it's literally almost double um, what you get in the Cinebench uh, benchmarks, which is a good GPU uh, or CPU, excuse me, benchmarking test. Well, we have a, an i7 uh, tower here, and obviously it's not exactly the same, but uh, we really liked that and found it had good performance on compressing and, uh, and Final Cut workflow. So uh, that brings me to my last point I wanted to flag with you, which is um, 
We're moving now from the the very informative discussion we just had, and I really appreciate that, <laughs> oh, no, to just pure it, outright, outright speculation. <laughs> but, uh, no, it is a lot of... It is really significant to people in, in the listening to this podcast that there is a strong talk of a NAB timeframe uh, yep. Final Cut Pro. Mm. Um, I, I, don't, I know you don't have any inside knowledge from in, you know, having broken into Apple with a, uh, uh, a team of uh, people to steal code or anything, but what's your take from just reading around the net? It seems like, I think the rumors this time seem a little more substantial than they have in the past from what I'd call more reliable sources, if you would. Um, I mean, obviously, Apple speculation is a big game on the net. There's actually probably a whole industry surrounding that, right? But it does actually seem as though... Uh, based upon these latest rumors of, of editors being called to Cupertino to check things out, uh, Steve Jobs actually literally saying uh, that Final Cut Pro is not dead with the, the emphasis on Pro. I mean, I think we're going to see something, and NAB time frame seems like a logical time to do it. You know, I personally, I again, won't believe it. If it doesn't it. show, then I'm out. <laughs> Sorry, John. <laughs> well, well, no, I'm not, if, it, if it doesn't show at NAB, I'm, I'm going to a Premiere or something. That's, uh, that's I, my, I think that's my cutoff. You'd go to Premiere or Avid? Uh, Premiere. Really? I would be. Yeah. I think Avid is. I, I I love Final Cut, but I have to say I've been really impressed with Avid over the last year. Mm. Um, but John, we've got a lot of workflow on FX PhD and FX Guide devoted to Final Cut. Right. So, if I was to ask you now, and again, this is just uh, your <laughs> personal opinion, but if I was to ask you, like, what are your top three things you'd like to see? And I'm going to leave 64-bit out of it because that's kind of obvious. Uh, what are the three things you'd like to see in um, in Final Cut Eight, if there was such a thing? Uh, reliability, first and foremost. Reliability and stability, and that involves hooking into QuickTime. I just find that it's uh, it can be incredibly unreliable at times. Even if you have a workflow set up, um, the slightest change can cause weird things to happen when you're working in Final Cut. Uh, second one, I think, would be, as far as creative tools, uh, better masking type things. Um, basically for things like grading subtle grading and so forth number three i'd have to think about that actually i haven't thought much about it honestly i'll I'll be honest with you but i like you i think i would really like to see a new final cut pro out i don't mean to be negative i'm only negative from the standpoint of the continual speculation without something happening as you know we use it all the time i mean that's i use that some premiere uh on my macbook i basically rely on final cut pro to do my editing so i certainly would welcome uh, seeing an upgrade to that pro program especially i think architecturally to smooth things out under the hood mm. i'd like to offer you a uh i'd like to nominate for the third position uh fixing <laughs> the gamma problems in quick time yes um i guess the other thing is that uh <laughs> final cut is um is a program that obviously uh is one of the pro apps it'd be nice just to see a strong play in the pro apps because a lot of us nervously watch Apple and say, I really hope they don't just go the way of Sony and become, you know, consumer and then kind of less relevant. And so this is, uh, we, you know, we haven't seen a major uh, app in the pro area, certainly not in my space for at least a, a little while. So I'd love to see it just for what it says about them not walking away from pro apps. Yeah, especially from a software and a hardware standpoint, seeing, you know, a better support and more graphics cards. And some of that's Apple, some of that's NVIDIA. But I'd like to see higher level Quadro cards on the, on the Mac. I, I like using Mac OS. And as I've been writing in FX Guide, I've been using the, the HP quite a bit now, and I love it as well. But, you know, I do most of my work on the Mac platform. And it, you're right, it would be good to see a commitment to the pro side of things and not simply all the cool stuff like iPhones and iPads. 
Mm. Well, there's so many possibilities with Thunderbolt with that they could mm-hmm. uh, make work for Final Cut Pro. That if they if they don't, they let that go through to the keeper. Then that's just that's the writing on the wall. I think, regardless of just having just updated Final Cut, if they don't sort of make the most of this uh, Thunderbolt, um, you know, technology for you know our side of the the coin, mm-hmm. then uh, I think that's you know if they just start using it for a bit more side of the. Uh, the um, consumer side of things, then I think we're uh, it's real. The writing really is in the wall on the wall there. I I think this is a you know a, I mean look I would not normally on Red Center cover um, a laptop release because it's obviously not you know uh, but having said that on set I see oh, yeah. a lot of Apple laptops and a lot of workflow now especially when we're shooting raw is concerned with how you process this stuff and and workflow is everything when it comes to you know basically setting up a, a camera department these days. Yes, exactly. And, and, and up to this point, uh, to, your, to your vein of this being a discussion about production and on set, it's very true. These are very Apple machines to that. And up till now, I haven't mentioned the HD FaceTime camera yet, so, which is utterly mm-hmm. not useful for what we're talking about. But again, <laughs> but again all this Thunderbolt really is. It's targeted exactly to what we do on set. And that's why I think it's interesting. Yeah, and... Uh, I think that quite a lot of people would like the ability to uh, basically detach from the cables and just be able to have it on their lap when they're doing something and then plug in to get Mm -hmm. heaps more power uh, when they do. And I've got to say, at the moment, things like uh, Drobo, for example, kind of useful but totally slow and sluggish (laughs) and generally not a production tool. They're like good as a backup device. But, you know, that idea of just having a Drobo on a Firewire 800, I mean, so slow. It's, you know, unbelievably um, not in the hunt. And, you know, we were quoting these numbers at being considerably faster than, say, uh, I don't know, USB 3, because USB 3 seemed like a good option to go to. But, I mean, most people, if not almost everybody, is not on USB uh, 3 right now. They're on USB 2, and Mm. we're talking 20 times faster than that. So... Um, and 12 times faster than, than FireWire 800. So, yeah, it really is uh, a big diff. And the other thing is, of course, with more cameras coming out, we're shooting more material, we're having to process a lot of stuff. Data we're shooting isn't getting any lower, and it's getting, in a lot of cases with stereo, it's getting double. Double, yeah, yeah true. Yeah, exactly. Okay, John, well, thank you so much for, uh, for being our um, dial-in expert. Um, <laughs> we really appreciate it. Glad I could help out. Obviously a big fan, and so... I will see you soon in a couple of weeks, I hope so. Look forward to it. Thanks, guys. Okay, so continuing the news, there's been a reasonably good uh, news day, news week since last ep. Uh, Sony, I think, is in, in a, almost, I guess, a bit of a sort of un-Sony-like kind of move, and we started to see a bit more of this stuff from them uh, recently. Uh, they've, I guess they've opened the standard or are going to make public the specs for their E-mount, for Sony's E-mount, which is obviously on a fair few cameras now, and with their NX cam camera, camera coming, their full, uh, not full frame sensor, their Super 35 NX, NX cam camera coming soon, and who knows what else they got in the pipeline. Uh, this mount is obviously going to um, be a bit more prevalent. So obviously what they've done is basically disclosing the basic specs for its E-mount um, without a fee to manufacturers of lenses and mount adapters, etc., starting in April. So what I'm hoping this is going to mean is that um, so obviously information on how the autofocus and the power pins work and all that sort of stuff will be out there and then third parties will be able to work on on stuff like lens adapters and uh, not just lenses so 
uh, I'm hoping that uh, we're going to, you know, lens adapters are going to get rather than at the moment you can buy a lot of, you know, physical only lens adapters which require you to then get very manual lenses uh, like older Nikon glass or older Canon glass if you want to adapt it, if you want fast glass because uh, a lot of the time there, or, or to use your existing glass, it'd be great to then use um, uh, Canon or Nikon um, AF lenses on on these coming cameras because uh, obviously as these cameras get cheaper and give you larger more capabilities and larger chips but for less what you don't necessarily want to do is buy a camera for you know five six grand and then have to start using pl glass you know you want to be able to start using <laughs> you want to be able to start using your own your own so every every lens would actually cost more than a camera yeah well that is well, we're heading that way yeah. aren't we no, absolutely we you know i mean the f3 is sort of in that kind of in the sort of halfway mark where it's completely acceptable but as these cameras get sort of lower you know cheaper and cheaper cameras with with proper filming capabilities uh like the you know the presumably what the, this coming NX cam will do, um, you're going to be able to want to literally go shoot video with it and uh, not necessarily have to go rent, uh, you know, 10,000, you know, don't want to have to sort of rent or purchase $20,000 worth of lenses. So uh, I think it's great. Again, it's another move from, from companies like Sony who are opening stuff up and realize that this is, you know, a real benefit to them to be able to um, have third parties working for them. And it means that I guess if if those other lenses are out there, it means I guess it's they can spend time doing R and D on their own stuff rather than having to R and D cameras and and glass as well. So it kind of makes sense because not everybody wants to buy your glass, you know. However good it is, and whoever you are, yep. people have you know glass, either existing glass or they have you know loyalties to a certain brand. So Absolutely, you can't necessarily force that kind of stuff on people. So anyway, well done, Sony. That's really impressive. Yeah, we've seen a bit of a, uh, I don't know, shift, I think, from Sony. Yeah, and also, you know, same thing with, with Ari have opened up and they're using a lot of open specs for Alexa and, you know, there's a lot of uh, interoperability. You can, we're starting to see apps in the App Store that work with an Alexa, for God's sake, and the same thing, I guess, hopefully, is going to happen uh, with, with Epic when it comes, with wireless stuff. Oh, you stuff just know and, that it will. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm so hoping. So, um, uh, oh, that's, that's great. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a cosy, comfy friendly and new world well now let's um run to the first of our independent uh filmmaker interviews and uh this is the film like crazy give us the rundown on this chase uh, well, it's very hard for me to actually get any. Uh, there's there's a very simple trailer out there. There's some footage out there, but uh, basically, I guess it's the first. I'm yet to fully qualify whether it actually is the first DSLR released DSLR feature. I seem to think there was something called Tiny Furniture, but whether that actually got a full theatrical release, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe someone. Um, um, uh, some listeners can help us with that, but uh, I guess what what's great is that uh, these are guys that have uh, John and his d- director. These are guys that have you know have come from proper film backgrounds and have shot. Um, you know, their first preference would probably be you know with a full cinema camera and you know be be it, be it film or be it a red one or whatever to, to shoot this stuff. And I think the decision was made to and as as John talks about to to have a little bit more of a um, a, a filmmaking process on set that didn't get in the way of the acting process. And obviously, as John will talk about, not having as big a lighting setups, not having as big a sort of grip setups, and just travelling light sort of kind of is a creative choice as, as much as a budgetary one. So here's John. 
Well, thanks, John, for taking the time. Really appreciate it, mate. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. The film, what I've seen so far, looks fantastic. It's doing really well at Sundance, as you can attest yourself, having attended personally and already been pre-sold. So it looks really great, looks really natural and honest, and uh, it's got a really nice available light look. Thank you. Was that kind of the thought going into it, to keep it natural, or was that just uh, dictated by the budget? I mean, do you know, what was the original budget, do you know? Uh, You know, I I don't know the exact budget but we you know what they say is it's uh under two or three million a lot under so <laughs> and the thought going into it was i mean the, the reasoning behind the 70 was that the director really wanted something where the the actors could just forget about the camera so it, it was it was definitely a creative choice and a, a very scary choice um, but uh, but it, it seems to have worked out for us. Uh, were you a fan of DSLR stuff before? Had you shot with it before? Or? Uh, you know, I had played around with it a little bit. Um, I had shot, uh, you know, something for a friend with it, and that was it, but was was pretty interested. I'm more, like, lately more of a red person, and, uh, yeah, so this was really, you know, this was definitely the first time I used the hot rod, uh, which was probably the only reason that we we even thought of it as a viable option right was being able to put ultra primes on that camera so i will i'll jump into the gear a little bit in a minute but uh sure. so not having a huge reel of dslr stuff on your reel yeah what, how did you come to be involved with the project uh well drake and i had done a movie a few years ago we actually went to afi together um and we had done we did a short together uh about five years ago which he wanted to do he only had 500 bucks to do it and you know and i was like sure why not you know (laughs) and then after that that led to a feature called spooner that we did which was at slam dance in 09 and you know after that he did a movie called douchebag which i was not involved with it was just uh it just wasn't the right timing for us um but what he did on that movie was he developed sort of a, a voice i think where you know he he shot it on an hvx and it was all improv- improvised and that did very well for him it was at sundance last year um and then he wanted to do another movie and i hadn't seen douchebag uh but i didn't know how he did it but i sort of wanted to come back together with him and do something a little more cinematic but try to keep that same style of shooting uh that that was so successful for him so keeping the camera out of the artist's way or not not having the tech get in the way of the uh, artist's process, I guess. Exactly, yeah. And, and, and we had talked about shooting on the red because, you know, I'm very familiar with that. And, and, and it just seemed like maybe for him it was a bit too cumbersome mm. uh, for this style of shooting that he wanted to do. And so, you know, and for a while we sort of wavered. We were like, well, how about we do a lot of it on the red and then for some of it we'll we'll take this this hot rod 70 and uh, you know, and, and we'll and we'll do things with that and we started playing with it and we realized, well, maybe we should just shoot the whole movie like this. Okay, well, let's talk through the gear what you took and mm-hmm. what lenses and monitoring and etc. Sure. Uh, well, we had the hot rod with uh, Ultra Primes, and we carried the, the 16, 24, 32, 50, 85, and 135 lens. And then, uh, well, I had a couple of hand, different handheld rigs. I like the one that comes with the hot rod, the Aliamade. Uh, it's just sort of like a, almost like a fig rig kind of thing that, yeah. that goes around it like a cage. 
um, and and that becomes useful sometimes. And then I also carried a mantis, which I'm pretty used to um, yeah. with the red, uh, but doesn't necessarily always translate very well into the DSLR. Yeah, because with uh, those lenses on on a DSLR, you're going to be considerably front heavy. Exactly. Yeah, and it's very painful. Like even more painful than a red if you're front yeah. heavy with DSLR. Um, and then also the uh, the Red Rock handheld rig. So that was very useful as well. And then we also had the the Black Magic SDI, the and a Marshall monitor on board, and then a 17 inch uh, uh, Panasonic monitor as a director's monitor. Camera gets uh, quite complicated quite quickly when you start having um, down converters yeah. and then power for those and onboard monitoring and power for those. Yeah, the power was a real, real problem sometimes, yeah. um, especially since he wanted to do extremely long takes. Uh, and a lot of times, I mean, you know, we went until it overheated, you know. Ah, yes. And, and it, he developed this this term. He said, okay, we're going to roll and we're going to go to the sensor. That's what he would call it. <laughs> so as much as I fought against that, thinking, oh, we're going to get more noise when it gets heated up and whatever, you know, a lot of times we just had to do it. So is that the real issue? You know, it wasn't for me. I never noticed it in dailies. And I always warned them because I had done some reading and people had said, oh, you know, the image starts to break up like when it gets when it gets hot before it overheats. And but, you know, I'd look very closely at the dailies every night just to know if there were any red flags that I should be warning, you know, mm. production about. And I never, never really there was anything that I noticed. So what was the average time you were getting on long takes before the heat was an issue? About 12 minutes. Okay, so before you ran out of uh, data, you would run out of uh, the ability to shoot at all. Exactly, yeah. And, <sighs> and sometimes, you know, the, the, like one of the hard things would be if I was, you know, I was in a room with the actors and they were out in another room, sometimes my, uh, my onboard monitor would just stop working because of the battery and they wouldn't know right because you know, the black just... <laughs> magic is still working and they're in the other room and and then i'd hear you know what's wrong with the shot like what's wrong with the frame like i can't <laughs> i'm guessing <laughs> you know? and, yeah so so that was a problem i'd try to keep it together as long as i could especially if the you know the performances were really intense and i didn't want to you know i didn't want to ruin a great moment because of the technology <laughs> so when it overheats what gives you another 12 minutes just Turn it off and wait a few minutes and go again. Yep. That is a pain. Yeah, it's a pain, for mm -hmm. sure. Kind of counterintuitive to the whole um, camera staying out of the way of the process, kind of. <laughs> it becomes the process. It was very frustrating sometimes for Drake. But, but you know, he, he started to realize, okay, we're going to go 12 minutes and then we'll take a little break and then we'll roll again, you know. Yeah. But if it were up to him, we'd shoot for an hour. <laughs> so if you're going to shoot it all again, what would you change? Um, well, I definitely, I've seen that there are a few, like, universal power cages now that, that seem to be pretty useful. Um, I haven't played with any of them or even know what they're called. And that seems like it would be really useful, something that could power everything for you. I think I'd definitely run a remote focus the entire time. Uh, a lot of times, especially with that Mantis, just to get it balanced, like, the camera was sitting next to my ear, you know, which is, is horrible for your focus puller. But I would have to say, you know, the hot rod modification is, is really, like, the only thing that makes this viable to me. Being able to use uh, the cinema lenses on it, uh, you know, that's, that's amazing.
So this is the full uh, mirror box removal mod where basically you're not restricted to any lenses, essentially. There's, there's no issue with um, lenses you can't fit. Exactly, yeah. Right, so you wouldn't think about 5D next time. It's not going to overheat. Uh, I guess you're going to have different issues. You're going to have different issues with lenses, but yeah, I, yeah. My issue, we thought about the 5D originally because you know it is such a, a beautiful image with the shadow depth of field. But I feel like it would become more of a hindrance in the situation because the other way, in like the way we were shooting, he likes to do improvisational blocking as well. So therefore, you know, I have to be pretty creative about where I'm putting lights and things like that, so that they can walk into a room having never been in there before. And, and start playing out a scene in a wide shot. Um, a lot of times I'd have to put lights in places I didn't want them to go and just not turn them on. And, uh, and that was a, a real... He doesn't like to use marks or, or anything, which, you know, is great for the actors. And, and, and I was always saying, too, it's like, you know, sometimes I'd, <coughs> I'd light a part of the room, you know, and they'd actually go there, and it would be fine, but sometimes I'd light a part of the room and they'd go to the other side of the room and it would look amazing. <laughs> so, you know, you just sort of discover things sometimes. See, now, if you'd had the whole marks thing, then you wouldn't have got there. Exactly. Um, so the whole process is a bit of a pain for you sometimes, but it can lead to uh, undiscovered country. It is, but it's also exciting for me. Like, I, I almost, you know, it's something that I've never done before. And, and something I would definitely be willing to do again with him because you just find these moments and you find things that, that, that you may not have planned, which, which is pretty exciting. So do you think if you'd shot it on Red 1, which would be probably your preference, Sure. Yeah. what would the changes on set, do you think, psychologically? Do you think you could get away with that level of simplicity, do you think? It's just a slightly larger camera, really, but uh, somehow it does seem to change things. Yeah, you know, I mean, I have a feeling we could get away with it to a certain extent. Um, but I do think that there's something comforting to the actors about feeling like there's just this little tiny camera in the room, you know? Mm. I mean, and we were also, we were crammed into a lot of tight spaces. And you'll see in the movie, there's like scenes where they're under the covers and, and my camera's under the covers with them. You know, just a, a lot of things. I mean, that we shot a scene. I mean, the other thing that we haven't discussed is how how great this is for, for just going out in the world and grabbing things. A lot of times we'd just get a, a grid permit and we wouldn't have much of a crew at all. And, and we would just, you know, walk around, me, the camera, the lens, you know, and, and just, you know, not steal things necessarily. Um, although there was one, we, we, you know, when we, we, we shot a little bit in London as well. And on the way there, we shot a scene on the airplane. Right. You know, there's no way we could do that with a red one. So I guess the moral of the story is bring on Epic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've been discussing that actually about how we're pretty excited about, you know, having something that, that's that's uh, sort of midway in between the two. Because also the, the really scary thing is the H.264 compression. <laughs> I mean, you know, when this movie got into Sundance... And I've been there a couple times and, and seen movies at the Eccles Theater, which is a gigantic, I believe, 1,400-seat theater with a huge screen. You know, that was terrifying to me. <laughs> you know, because we, we really, at that point, hadn't seen it on a big screen. We hadn't finished, we haven't, hadn't done our color correction yet, which we eventually did in, in uh, the theater room at Hollywood DI, which was great and sort of set my mind at ease. But we just, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't have the ability to, to do dailies on a big screen or anything. So, but luckily 
as everyone was telling me while we were prepping it, I, uh, Aaron Peak at Hollywood DI was involved in our, our prep with us a little bit, um, and he had sort of told me everything's going to be fine, you know? <laughs> so how did it look up on the big screen? Strangely enough, what Aaron kept telling me, and which was true, the bigger it gets, the better it gets. Um, just the image gets, a, a, like, the even we have a few, like, mores still. We cleaned a few of them up, and, you know, we had somebody paint them out and... Um, but, uh, you know, they, they get a lot softer and you don't notice them. And I mean, it's really the ultimate illusion. <laughs> and, you know, on the huge screen at Eccles, it was, it was probably the best that ever looked. So, uh, how was the experience of Sundance for you as a cinematographer of a film, not to obviously being, um, I guess, involved producer or director wise? I mean, it was a, an amazing ride. I mean, I, I we had no idea going into it how the movie was going to be received. You know, so we screened the movie at Eccles for the first time. It went over really well. We had a great Q&A. And then, you know, we we all went out to lunch. And while we were there, the first offers started coming in. <laughs> and it was, it was insane. I mean, the, the first offer I heard about, which was literally like two hours after... Um, after we had screened, they're like, oh, somebody already offered $2 million for this movie. <laughs> you know, and we weren't expecting anything. I mean, you think about last year, I believe Winter's Bone sold for a million dollars last year. Mm. You know, and we, we thought we'd be lucky to get, some, get, get a deal like that. So, um, so it was pretty exciting. Um, it was pretty exciting selling the movie, you know, and, and, and that whole night, like, when that was happening. Uh, and then... And then everybody's reactions to it, just seeing people on the street and people telling us how they felt about it. And then, of course, leading up to um, uh, Saturday night when we won the grand jury prize, that was just totally unexpected and, and, and an amazing, amazing feeling. Well, look, thanks for chatting. I really appreciate it, John. Oh, yeah, no problem. How can people get in touch or find out more, follow you, book you? Uh, my my website is uh, johndp.com, uh, which is pretty easy. All right. Well, the best of luck with it. Uh, great job. Looking forward to seeing it out in the wild. It'll be great to catch up with the film and, uh, yeah, catch up with you soon. Thanks so much, Jason. Again, thank you, John, for taking your time. Really appreciate it, mate. Thank you. Well, now our second uh, interview is with Tony Gardner. Now, Tony is a cinematographer, heck of a nice guy, and his film, uh, Maestro, was in the Tropfest. Now, Tropfest is a very big, as you'll hear me talking about um, later in the interview, a very big uh, short film festival. What struck me about this, and you'll hear me gushing a bit, is just uh, how great this film is for combining the SLR at in video mode and the SLR in stills mode as uh, in sort of stop frame and long exposure. It, they're combined so well here and it's something you couldn't do unless you had a camera that could do both because the shot in the same shot moves from being one to the other. So in the same take, as it were, you're moving from uh, live action that's recorded obviously in video mode to stills compiled together to turn it into <clears throat> moving footage in a time-lapse sense. And it's it's so well done. He's got the exposure so well nailed. Um, I just think this is a terrific film. So I recorded this, Jace, um, earlier this week. So firstly, congratulations on the film. Um, just outstanding. And, and the thing that I like about it the most is that I was liking it before it took off about halfway through. Oh, great. Thank you. That's lovely of you to say. 
Um, so can I get some of the sort of, uh, I guess, background of how the film came to be? How did you get to be involved in this short film? Uh, sure. Um, the director, Adam Anthony, and I had worked together on a few campaigns, uh, one being a, a, he directed a campaign for ESPN. Um, and so that's how we met. Uh, he came to me with this idea of a crazy homeless guy um, and of conducting the city, and he said, how are we going to do this? And uh, together we sort of formulated how we're going to go about doing it. Um, and, yeah, that's how it came about. Well, now, look, the, the film's available on YouTube for people to watch, but um, I'm not going to spoil it when I say that the cinematography in in every respect with a film, obviously, helps tell the narrative. In your case, though, the cinematography really defines the narrative because it is the visualisation of his imagination and his relationship to the city. Was it always to be executed the way that you came to, or did you sort of experiment to get there? Uh, it was always going to be that way. That was the original idea, and that's what we uh, followed with testing and uh, to make sure that we could describe the, or you know, get into his imagination that way. Well, I'm, I'm going to drill down on a few shots because I just think people would be really interested to know how you did it. So the shot that just literally like blows your head off is uh, he's standing looking down the street and the street is a nice shot. And up until this point we had like really great bokeh and like soft shallow depth feel. So honestly, I, I like the cinematography at this point. And then suddenly it explodes. Explain that shot to us. Uh, the one looking down William Street, that was the uh, toughest sequence. That was probably three or four nights. Um, and the New South Wales Police Force came and visited us one, one evening uh, when we were standing in the middle. But that, um, that all started uh so he's standing in the middle of william street and he's in real time and all the lights around him go into time-lapse light streaks um but that they do it during the shot which is what makes it so interesting because that's the moment that we enter his musical interpretation of the city and it's it's literally like the city just explodes with light because of the streaking effect of the time lapse how'd you do it um so we set up in <laughs> sort of safely in the middle of the road we shot him real time uh, just on the Canon 5D Mark II, uh, and then we removed him, and then we did our time-lapse pass, uh, which was long exposure. I think it was anywhere, we were using anywhere between 10 to 30-second exposures to get the long light streaks. Uh, and then our compositor, Ed Copestick, uh, he rotoed uh, the maestro out and then put him on top of the time-lapse plate. So that was the easiest way we figured to do, because shooting him in place... Uh, rather than a green screen, just got away, got us away from having to try and match it on a, a green screen. The thing, though, that impressed me is, and maybe I just remember it this way, but it didn't seem to have this exposure pop that I expected. It transitioned from one to the other. How did you pull off the background, not sort of popping? Um, a lot of testing. Um, a lot. We spent a month recceing Sydney. Um, because uh, that's where we decided we wanted to shoot and we spent a month finding the right places to find uh, where we could use the lighting, where we'd get light streaks, the right light streaks and then we just went there and shot and did a bunch of exposure tests. Okay, now it sounds simple but let's get into the details of it because let's say I'm shooting on a 5D Mark II, I'm in video mode. So mm -hmm. the actual aspect ratio of the frame is different. <laughs> of course, it's 1920 by 1080, not the high res. Yep. Um, and it's producing an H.264 file. Mm -hmm. So from that, you jump to, at the latter part of the shot, you're shooting presumably what, RAW? Uh, small JPEG we ended up small using. Small JPEG, okay. But it's, it's the full sensor size now. Mm -hmm. It's a series of stills. 
it obviously isn't H.264, it isn't compressed and it isn't through any of the looks, and yet you need that to happen in one shot seamlessly. So you really actually have almost two media problems. Yeah, um, fortunately, uh, Ed, our compositor, all up, uh, he did all the post except for the editing, Ed and Anthony uh, edited it. He uh, came to the forefront there. He, he spent long hours matching or getting our frames correct, getting the resolutions to match. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, I have to take my hat off to him for that. Um, so he was the one that helped us. It's just beautiful. And, and that the fact that you've got the exposure looking so nicely and the fact that everything seems to sort of take off then just sets the pace for the rest of the, uh, the film, really. Um, we then have a lovely shot of him uh, sort of orchestrating a shot looking up the side of a building. How was that done? Uh, that's on the, yeah, yeah. So that, um, again, so we put him in real time. So I pan down the building, or tilt down the building, I should say. Um, and then we, the minute I got to the end of the tilt, made sure we were locked off uh, to help Ed again so he could match up the frames. And then uh, did our time-lapse pass once it was locked off. So once we did the tilt down, we had to make sure that was the take we are going to use uh, for, so we, then we could match the time-lapse in without too much rejigging. And so then from there we get uh, a sequence at an amusement park. And I think what's really nice about the amusement parks, we've obviously seen quite a lot of stuff at amusement parks, but your streaks worked so well that what we got was these sort of cyclical um, motions because a lot of the rides are circular, but it wasn't just circular. There were sort of like waves or patterns of, and I'm being, I mean like a waveform kind of pattern. And, and that... that was that like a 10-second exposure, or how long was those? Sort of- yeah, again, they, they ranged. Uh, th- most of the rides were 10 to 15-second exposures. Um, again, we got there and played with length of exposures to see how the lights would react and what worked best for our film. Um, the scene in the uh, amusement park is the one time that we actually keyed him in. Um, oh, really? We shot him against green screen. That was done to make it feel even more disjointed as he went further and further into his imagination. So it was a deliberate choice. We did shoot him in place as per all our other sequences, but then uh, we decided that uh, for performance and for to tell the story that we'd shoot him against green screen in those situations. So, um, so obviously it's pretty easy when you're not shooting normally to do, you know, three, four, five takes. Um, on these time-lapse sequences, how long was it to get a take? Uh, it wasn't too bad. I mean, we, most night it was two and a half months of shooting, three nights a week, roughly, is how okay. it all works out. Uh, and there's probably about four, four or five sequences that ended up on the cutting room floor because once we established the idea, we didn't want to hit the audience over the head with it. Um, so because it was nice because the, the road one had a, a depth into the screen. The I, think, I assume it was elevators or whatever that was going up and down the side mm-hmm. was a was a tilt up kind of looking shot, and then of course the amusement park had a very circular nature, so it wasn't like you were repeating yourself. It wasn't just a Kwiatkowski for its own sake. There was a no, that was a very much conscious decision, especially from the director, that he wanted to use this technique, but not uh, to, to differentiate each one. We didn't want to use the same technique and for the film to get boring. So. So can you tell us how you set up your 5D? Is it set up neutral? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, so the picture profile was, uh, off the top of my head, um, saturation, uh, sorry, saturation was normal, contrast, sharpness all the way down the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was pretty much a picture profile I'd set up. All the ISO was between 1600 and 3200 ISO. Uh, there's that shot where he's in the park looking back across the city. That was 3200 on a 50mm 1.2L series. Um, people ask me about the noise uh, and my concern shooting at 3200. Fortunately, TropFest only accept entries in standard definition. So oh, really? I knew, knew it was going to go down to standard def, so that was a conscious decision. And we did test, and uh, the noise structure didn't worry me too much. Um, 
So that's pretty much basically it, I think. I think at the end, when you do have those live-action sequences, even if they are a bit noisy, I mean, he, he has a gritty life on the streets. It's not as if you're after a... Uh, a Miami Vice kind of slick thing. No, yeah, that was um, all, that also came into our decision. But the the time lapse stuff is incredibly vibrant, which I guess shows that even though it is H two six four, even though it's eight bit, um, and even though of course you would have had it not pumped up in the camera, there was still a, a bit of grading latitude there. Oh yeah, Trish Cahill, um, who I'm sure lots of your listeners may know, um, freelance colorist. Uh, I think she's based in Sydney. Yeah, Trish. She's fabulous. She and I set up a colour palette that we're really happy with and it's very subtle changes but when he, at the start of the film, it's more of a a monochromatic look and as he goes into his world, she brings out the colours and especially uh, she treated the time-lapse stuff um, fabulously and can't thank her enough. So, of course, the time-lapse stuff would have had to have been uh, tripod-mounted, otherwise, of course, it would uh, not hold up. But there was a lot of other advantages, I think, for shooting on an SLR. Like, for example, there's a lovely sequence that's not really effectsy where he um, is getting in sync with the windscreen wipers on the car. Now, the shot is, for those who haven't seen it, from the back seat, effectively looking through the front windshield, and thus you can see the windscreen wipers and, and our character starts sort of effectively orchestrating in sync with those. Um, how did you find the camera to operate and did you have any kind of shoulder rig or um, sort of special mountings on it? Um, yep. For obviously, for all the time that stuff, as you said, that was all tripod. tripod. Uh, for the stuff where he's uh, walking down the street and in the back of the car and things like that, we used Steadicam, uh, just a little Steadicam pilot, the junior brother to the flyer, which is absolutely fabulous for the 5D. Um, and there was only a crew of four or five of us at any one time on the street. So that was really handy, just having a backpack and we were really mobile, so we'll be able to walk up and down William Street and not have to get in the car, pack up the Steadicam, unpack it all. Uh, so that was really convenient, but yeah. I take it from the end credits you had permission to shoot at the amusement park. Did you have yes. permission to shoot everywhere else, or was that uh, turning s- up unexpected? Yeah, we started with permission to shoot on the sidewalks, and then, we, I, to be honest, I only saw the script once at the beginning of the film, and then it was the director, the producer, writer, and then myself uh, all hanging together and going on the journey with the maestro. So we were shooting randomly all over the place. We'd come up with new ideas once the edit was coming together. So we kind of stopped worrying about getting permissions uh, and we had a few visits from the New South Wales Police Force. Um, To be fair, they were really lovely about it uh, on the first time. Uh, They said, you know, guys, you're in the middle of the road. Just be careful, um, which was nice. And the second in, in, uh, interruption... Were you on a, a media, medium strip, or was it just literally in the no, middle of the No, we were literally in the middle of the okay. street for that one, um, uh, at that big intersection. Um, okay. So, and then the second time wasn't so lovely. We were shooting on a medium strip this time, and we'll, we took the officer's uh, words before to heart. And, but, however, a cop car pulled up, tasers pulled, cops yelling at us, what are you doing? Marched across the street, hands up against the wall, searched. They, apparently they'd had reports of a homeless man with a knife. So our actor was in full makeup. Even though they saw me with a steady cam on, they still decided to go through and search us. Yeah, now, of course, he's holding a uh, what we call a squeegee for doing windshields, but I guess somebody may have misinterpreted that as a knife. Or do you yeah, think I guess. They, they, they were lovely in the end and probably a little embarrassed as our actor has a bit of a profile, um, having been in a few features uh, in Australia and um, an Australian television series. But um, So once they realised who it was, they were a little embarrassed, but um, they were, you know, it all worked out in the end. Okay, so the, the film came a third in Tropfest, and mm-hmm. you were awarded, and rightly so, I completely concurred for the cinematography. Um, tell me, was it always designed as a Tropfest film? And, and yeah, from day one. Uh, when Adam, the director, came to me, it was always planned for Tropfest. Um, 
We did have a key in there. No one has actually seen the key, which is the TrotFest signature item that the all, all things TrotFest need to have. Um, but yeah, it was always de- destined as a TrotFest film. So where was the key? It, it is 58 seconds in and in for 13 or 14 frames, I think, in the bottom of the Indian restaurant. Okay. Good, good to know for those that are spotting at home. And so for those that aren't familiar with the TropFest uh, festival, it, it happens. Uh, it's a very, very large, uh, incredible, I think it could be one of the largest. That's the world's largest this, short film, film festival. Yeah. And uh, to enter, you have to actually have made a film that has the signature item for that year. So this year it was Keys, but mm-hmm. it's... I, Previous years have been like umbrellas and horns and all sorts of weird yeah, all things. kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, and so uh, so obviously you had like what large budget uh, tens of thousands. Uh, of I think Adam has quoted in uh, a paper in an interview saying four and a half thousand dollars total, and of which most of that went on the post. Uh, some of it was on the maestro's makeup. Um, all crew were free, uh, and then we got some generous donations, especially from the sound department as well. Sam Sam Haywood at um, Deluxe. Uh, and Rosie, uh, our sound designer, who needs a big shout-out because the film relies heavily on her work as well, and Benjamin Speed, the composer. Actually, yeah, it does. It is what it is a great film because each of the departments so seriously contribute to the narrative because, obviously, the acting is, is central for believing um, the journey, but then, obviously, as I said, your cinematography really explains the story and the sound just is... Integral. Yeah, uh, and look, it's it's a great gift as a cinematographer to get a director come to you with such a visual story. It, it, it doesn't happen too often in your career that the, uh, the you get to st- tell a story like that, and, and also get the um, get the trust of the director as well uh, to go on that journey with him. Was it? It felt like there were no actual words at all. But was there any lines of dialogue? There was uh, none from the maestro, um, and, and there was saying, "Don't clean my windshield." Or yeah, there was uh, Rory in the car who said no, and then there was a, 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 we got a your mum joke in there as well from oh, a young the kid. Traffic lights. Yeah. Um, right. Yes. So it's something that I highly recommend people check out. Um, how long is the film in total? Five minutes fifty-two seconds. And then you said how long it took you to do it? it was uh, two and a half months of night shoots, roughly, and then sort of a month-ish in post, and a month of wrecking before we actually started shooting. So, so the five D is meant to be a great camera for shooting kind of incognito. But mm. if you were doing a project like this again, if for some reason you had another reason to do, is it a camera that you'd grab again? Did it work well for you? In other words, it did. It, the the form factor was obviously key. Um, shooting gorilla as we did. Um, so I would definitely use it again. Um, truth be told, oh, well, I mean, no, I, it was advantageous being, going down to standard def uh, and shooting all at night. That was the big key. The, um, the low light capabilities was just uh, fabulous. And especially with the Canon lenses, the 50L series and the 24L series, 1.2 and 1.4 respectively, uh, were essential. Did you have any lights or reflectors? No, or all available light. That was in the recce. Um, you know, we can shoot here, we can shoot there. I did plan to use reflectors and cutters, but it was just such a free-flowing kind of project that... Uh... It's an interesting problem for a, a DRP, isn't it? Because it's not that you don't have any lighting, you just don't have any lights. That's actually yes. quite a big difference. Yes, yeah, that's a big... yeah. So. Um, and and it, it did look like you got some nice quality of light, especially on his face, because obviously there are times at which we need to really understand the story from his expression. Yeah, street lights were my friend, and car headlights and that sort of thing. So. But if you are only using that, which is where I'm heading, did you have a heck of a problem balancing out? Because, I mean, those are all... In- Vastly different colour temperatures and stuff. They are. Um, I kind of took a gamble most times. I, again, I sorted it out a lot in te- well, a little bit in testing, um, but it was a bit of a gamble. I, I sat mainly in the 4,000 to 5,000 degrees Kelvin 
kind of range. Um, and then Trish helped and balance it all out once we got there. But it was all within cooey of each other. Because I've got to say, that's the thing, as I said at the outset where we started, it just seems to me remarkable how you've used these incredibly different techniques, producing actually vastly different types of media files under different lighting conditions and different vastly different exposures. And yet it actually feels like one complete from a cinematography point of view, one complete, simple journey. So Yeah, no, oh, thank you. That's great. You know, it's great of you to say. But, yeah, uh, big shout-out goes to Trish and Ed, who also helped on that journey. So uh, Ed being a compositor and Trish, the greater. Well, thanks for talking to us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Look, thank you, Tony, for taking the time. Great stuff. Really, really good. I um, uh, wish you all a continued success with the film. It's really great. It uh, obviously won, a, won, its, won its award at Chopfest. And came Sydney. third overall, which is great. Third overall and now, best cinematography. If you're in America, you should be able to watch that on YouTube. Uh, if you're outside America, I'd recommend that you go to Tony's website because at the moment, and only in the last day or so, it's been uh, blocked for being played outside of America. Uh, I'm not quite sure why, but anyway, uh, Tony has his own website, thirdgenerationfilms.com.au, and if you go to that and uh, look at his montage, you'll see some of the shots that we're referring to. Yep, that's T-H-I-R-D. T-H-I-R-D, correct. Yeah, no spaces, no dashes. Yep. Um, And the thing about uh, the film is that I'm sure that once the whatever it's doing in New York thing that's causing this uh, blip on playing back, um, you'll be able to play it on YouTube, because I was watching it on YouTube earlier in the week. Yeah. And, uh, and happily so here in Sydney. It's a really good film. And I just love filmmakers that <clears throat> can, as I said in that interview, just totally brings the story into their craft, be it the audio or the cinematography. I mean, this film just only works because of, of Tony's cinematography. So, Yep, excellent. Now, let's uh, change uh, over to gear and have a look at this week's gear stuff. And now, the RC Gear Guide. Well, the uh, first one is very minimal. So there's a, a couple of uh, DSLR, uh, I guess, um, centric pits of gear. First of all, being uh, these zip gears, essentially zip tie focus gears. This is really, I mean, a few people have done something similar to this. Uh, and this is obviously an alternative to buying or having professional gears fitted to your lenses or having gears that you have to move from one lens to another or having quite big bulky gears that uh, you probably want to take off if you want to then go use your same lenses for stills work. So uh, this is a company called Half Inch, Half Inch Rails, which is a UK, a UK company. And uh, they have uh, basically just commissioned the design of some three or four different sizes of essentially what look like zip ties. And you wrap them around your lens. You buy one of four different sizes of zip tie and you wrap them around your lens. And then you use very, very small little tiny cable ties to link them in. They're very low profile and very... um, There you go, Mike. So that's... so they don't go all the way around. That's the sm- they don't go all the way around, but they have. That goes all the way around. That's right. Well, obviously, with you know, with Stills lenses, you don't need that massive amount of travel because the lenses generally don't 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 have that much travel in them, you know. But they have so many different sizes of, of tie that you can get them very close. That literally, almost there's only a few mil between the two. So a few different sizes and um, very very thin, very very low profile, as I said. And you could probably set and forget. Uh, 
uh, fit them to your lens and and leave them there. Really, they don't. They're quite you know quite aesthetically um, pleasing. There's a lot of this other stuff is really they? big. Uh, I think you can get uh, like a set of uh, three or four for about forty five dollars US at the okay. moment. There's the the reseller. There's only one U, uh, US only reseller that does US only shipping, but that is changing. The, there's resellers coming online very soon. So um, thanks to Sam Morgan Moore for going, you know, to the trouble to start actually, con- con- you know, um, commissioning the getting these things made and getting out there and you know because there's a lot of trouble to try and make this sort of stuff and you know yeah. this is not like you know this is not like it's um you know he's he is a massive company it's uh you know uh, I, just, I think that's really impressive okay now you have something cute sitting on your 5d here on the table what's sitting that on my this is uh okay of the australian company road uh have manufactured a new version of their uh, video mic which have been a stable of um, sort of doco I guess sort of news crews um, just one man sort of news gathering guys for a long time and you know doco guys and I've never really been a fan of the previous models I must say just because they've um, I guess been a bit sort of bulky or the design's been a bit weird. They've been a bit... The original ones have been sort of a bit top-heavy and uh, thus have sort of been a, a victim of their own design in terms of adding a bit of wobble as you move around. This, but this, this thing is much very, very much... It's it's about a half to a third of the weight, depending on if you're comparing it to the old stereo uh, video mic or the video mic. And it's really balanced, really light. It's only about 150 mil wide, oh, uh, long rather. I was sort of doing... Um, tests uh compared to i mean i've got like a four or five hundred dollar sony proper shotgun mic which is about twice two three times as long as that and uh, you know i mean obviously it, it is not that mic but it is um it's got you know pretty close to it in terms of the the polar pattern is is you know super cardioid it's got um uh the noise the i guess the um isolation the noise the sort of Transient handling kind of shock absorbing ability of yeah, the thing is yeah, it's all shock absorbed and that like does a work. Microphone. That does work really, like a real microphone. It does work really well. It's got a minus ten and plus twenty pad. It has plenty of volume that output for DSLRs and uh, obviously for the five D. If you're um, got manual uh, audio control on your five D, this is this is perfect for that. I think it works really it's well. Mono? It is a mono. It is a mono. I guess they'll do at some stage do a you know a rework of their um, stereo video video mic. Um, but look, you know, I don't need this necessarily need stereo for on top of a camera. But I think you know certainly it's. I reckon it's about. There's only about ten percent in it between that and my five hundred dollar mic, and obviously this this is um, I think about two hundred thirty dollars, and I've seen it actually priced here in Australia and on B and H for about the same money, about two hundred thirty US or Australian, and uh, you know for that money, it's you know it's almost almost as good as my four or five hundred dollar mic, and that does not come with a shock mount. Um, the foam windshield and I think the dead cat thing I had to put on top of it was even more money on top of that I think with this one actually you Does even get a come f- with a free dead cat it comes with one if you once you register uh, after online but I think it's um, it's got a really nice uh, flat frequency response it's got almost the same polar pattern as my um, you know much more expensive mic at almost about half the length and I think the main thing, from, the main improvement from the other ones is the fact that it's literally about half the size. It's much lower profile, and it's uh, you know much lighter. 
So, yeah, well done, Road. And I just think it's fantastic to support an Australian company that's really, really good and it's really affordable. So definitely, if you, if you need to just like simple run and gun where you just put that on top of the camera and maybe just like have a Z finder on the back of it, it's really, really, it really can help cut out a lot of other external um, stuff. It seems to be if it's off-axis rejection uh, of external noise seems to be almost about the same as my other, cool. my other shotgun mic. So, you know, you know, it's impressive. Well, that's it for another RC. And also, Jace, we should do our Twitter shout-out of the week. Um, this week we're going to do uh, Tony because Tony's a great cinematographer and uh, it's good to follow his Twitter feed. So we're happy to throw him some traffic. So please go and follow Tony. Uh, what's Tony's? It's Cine underscore Tony. I was throwing it to Jace thinking that he had it, but uh, he couldn't type quick enough. No, it's, uh, it's an unusual one. Cine, as in C-I-N-E underscore T-O-N-Y. And, uh, yeah. He's about, to, I think, to head off to Thailand to shoot. So, um, Excellent. But, yeah, uh, he's on Twitter. Um, Jace, obviously we mentioned at the top of the show you're off to New Zealand. Um, um, we're travelling around a bit. We're going to try and get one out, uh, another RC out next week because lots of interesting things happening next absolutely. week. Absolutely. Uh, might be one worth listening to next week. Yes, perhaps slightly less DSLR-centric, yes. shall we say. Um, so that's all happening, and uh, please keep your comments coming. Um, Jason, if people want to contact us or contact you, do you want to tell them where to type? Uh, yes, for me, you can go to jasonwingrove.com or vimeo.com slash wingrove or follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash wingrove and you, sir. Uh, I'm at FX Guide, of course, and uh, on Twitter is uh, Mike Simmel. And look, we get a lot of feedback from RC listeners, but probably more from the RC listeners than from any of the other podcasts. And uh, we really appreciate that. And quite often, if not almost, I think, every time, it's really intelligent, uh, sensible questions, flagging important stuff for us. And then travelling the around... Apart from the comments about the music. Apart from the comments about the music. But those people really... Just know. don't you know, Jason, pick the music. Um, so anyway, we really appreciate it. So um, if you've got any comments, uh, send them to us. Uh, pop uh, some notes. There's a comments field in the new newly designed fxguide.com site. Um, we're always keen to see and also download the show notes because uh, there's a ton of extra stuff that we pick, put in those and even more stuff coming in uh, in future weeks absolutely watch both our Twitter feeds just for news and I'm going to post a few other little sort of random kind of gear testing things uh, maybe some sound tests for this road mic and also a monitor I just tested so yeah watch the Twitter feeds as well guys thank you for listening catch you next week bye thanks for listening Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. This podcast sponsored by Storm, the red digital cinema production hub from the Foundry. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.